Well, good morning, my sisters and brothers. I'm Steve Anderson. I'm your interim pastor here to help uh, during this time between pastors. And I've been so blessed to be a part of your fellowship. Uh, it's amazing how quickly God works in uh, our heart, Harriet and mine, to make us love you like we'd been in your body for years. We deeply love this church. If you've been with us in recent weeks, uh, you know that this is now the fourth message as part of a study in Revelation 1 through 3, and there the Apostle John experiences a spectacular and stunning vision of Jesus in his glorified, magnificent presence among his churches, walking among the candlesticks that represent his seven churches in what was then Asia Minor, today that's Western Turkey. And for each of those churches, he, uh, he gives a report card of sorts, a message addressing the dynamics and the well-being of each congregation. Of the churches in these seven cities, Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea, real churches in real cities, of these churches, only two have a totally positive evaluation from the Lord. Five of them have problems to deal with, problems to tackle, struggles to overcome, improvements to be made. And when Jesus speaks to those churches, those five, he tells them, repent, repent. We're going to deal with one of those churches today. Now listen, these are Christian churches. These are churches filled with people who are believers, Jesus followers, and several are instructed to repent. When we hear the word repent, we have a tendency to think, well, that's a word for unsaved sinners. That's a word for those who haven't accepted Jesus. But these are believers who have accepted Christ. These are believers, and they are told, repent. What an interesting word, the word metanoia in the original language. And Gordon MacDonald suggests that it's not originally a religious word. It comes from a culture where nomadic people lived in a world with no maps and no street signs, no GPS, and it's easy to get lost walking through the desert. And he says you become aware that the countryside is unfamiliar and you finally say to yourself, I'm going the wrong direction. That, he said, is the first act of repentance. The second act of repentance is to turn and go an alternative direction. And it implies that you not only do this, but you admit it to those who are walking with you. Now listen, friends. Some of us have thought that only needs to happen when you first receive Christ and get saved. But the truth is that you and I, when we receive Jesus, then begin a journey of becoming like Jesus. And in this journey, the Holy Spirit will regularly interrupt and say, not that way, no, go this way. And that means that repentance, metanoia, happens regularly in the life of a growing Christian. We live a lifestyle of repentance because we want constantly to be becoming like Jesus. 
You know, there are some people who will never admit that they've ever been wrong. Or they will insist, I'm not as wrong as you. Proud, self-satisfied, don't you ever suggest I should change, and certainly don't you ever think I should repent. James 4, 6 says God resists proud people like that while he gives grace to the humble, those who turn away from self-righteousness. And I tell you, I don't need God's resistance in my life. I need the closeness, the closeness of humility. C.S. Lewis wrote, a Christian is not a man who never goes wrong, but a man who is enabled to repent and pick himself up and begin over again after each stumble because the Christ life is inside him, repairing him all the time, enabling him to repeat in some degree the kind of voluntary death which Christ himself carried out. So seven churches, seven unique challenges, and each hears a challenge of evaluation from the Lord. Five of them are told to repent. And while they were close geographically as churches, some of them only five miles apart, each of those churches had its own culture, its own behaviors, its own struggles, its own issues. And Jesus says to each, here's what you need to hear. Why should we notice these challenges because we want Lakewood to be a church that pleases the Lord. Nothing's more important to us than that. Regardless of what people say about us, regardless of what we even say about ourselves, we want Jesus to be pleased with us. And in studying what Jesus says to these seven churches, we want to get an idea of what Jesus might want to say to us. What kind of letter of evaluation, what kind of report card he would write to us. Well, let's dig now into this next church, the church in Pergamum. Pergamum is, again, a city, a wealthy city in the Roman province of Asia, what is now western Turkey. And like many of these cities, they, it was wrapped around a huge hill, an acropolis. Here it is, thousands of feet above the city. Can we have that next slide? There it is. A thousand feet above the city is that place where they built gorgeous, impressive temples to the god, especially to Zeus and Athena and Dionysius. And the famous demigod of the city was Asclepius, the patron of healing. And Pergamum became a place where People would come from all over the empire in hopes to be supernaturally healed by Asclepius. You may not have heard of Asclepius, but I know you've seen his symbol, the symbol of a snake wrapped around a pole. It's been borrowed for modern day as the symbol of modern medicine. And it's said that people would come to Pergamum to bathe in rich mineral baths, and to traverse through tunnels with heavy mineralized air, and even to lay in a room with hundreds of non-poisonous snakes 
believing they were soliciting the favor of Asclepius and increasing their chance of healing. Another interesting thing about Pergamum is that the temple of Zeus and Athena on the top of the Acropolis that was in a shape of a huge throne. It was excavated in 18, <clears throat> 1879 and following by a group of German archaeologists who found just gorgeous Greek and Roman re reliefs and, and statuary, and they tore it apart and brought it piece by piece to Berlin and assembled it there in what they call the Pergamum Museum. I've been there. I've, uh, I've walked those steps. It's an impressive, stunning, and an amazing place. That's Pergamum. So let's study the letter to the church in Pergamum. First, the salutation to the angel of the church in Pergamum right, the one who has the sharp two-edged sword. Who's that? We saw him in chapter 1. This is Jesus with his word to the church. Jesus says, verse 13, I know where you live, where Satan's throne is Satan's throne. Here's an allusion to that temple now in Berlin. This throne-like structure is where Satan rules and deceives people, keeping them from the one true God. He writes on, and you are holding on to my name and did not deny your faith in me, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan lives. Here are those words of commendation, those words of congratulation for the church. This church has been faithful in persecution, even through martyrdom. They've stayed faithful and said, do what you wish with us, but we're followers of Jesus and we won't deny him. By the way, Antipas the, is mentioned here. This is the only place he's mentioned in the scripture. But tradition tells us that during Nero's reign, Antipas was a leading pastor in the church of Pergamum who would not sacrifice to the pagan gods. And so they put him in a brass, uh, bowl-shaped, huge cauldron, undoubtedly something used for pagan worship, they put him in there and they roasted him to death. Even through this, the church has stayed committed to Jesus' name. But notice Jesus' words. This city is where Satan lives. The worship of Zeus is really the worship of Satan. Pagans love this place, but it's a place where evil dominates. And here is a church right in the middle of all this idolatry and wickedness. Now the critique, constructive criticism. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to place a stumbling block in front of the sons of Israel to eat meat sacrificed to idols and to commit sexual immorality. In the same way, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. There are some in your church, Pergamum, who have been captured by false doctrine, the teaching of Balaam. Now, you may remember that name from 
Numbers 22, the chapters following. The story of Balaam and his talking donkey and how God prevented Balaam from putting a curse on God's people and the donkey who would not try to go through this narrow place because an angel was in his way, the donkey turns around and says to Balaam, can't you see this angel in the way? The angel he could not see. Balaam is not a hero in this story. He's sent to curse God's people. In fact, though he could not get to the place to curse the Israelites, he told Balak, the king of Moab, that the best way to undermine God's people was to seduce the men of Israel to have sex with all of the beautiful, exotic Moabite women. And it drew God's people into worshiping Canaanite gods, resulting in the Lord's anger and judgment. You see, sexual temptation is a powerful seducer. And sexual adventurism is one of Satan's favorite ways to capture God's people and to defeat the plan of God. What's going on in the church at Pergamum? Understand this, please. The worship of all the ancient pagan gods the Canaanite gods, the Greek gods, the Roman gods, all the ancient pagan gods were worshipped in very sexual, erotic, sensual acts. That's why it was so tempting to God's people. The gods the ancients believed wanted to look upon and participate in sexual orgies, and that's how you got the gods to answer your prayers and take care of your needs. And some in the church at Pergamum were suggesting that a Christian could participate with all of that, compromise with the sexualized, idolatrous culture, go to involve themselves with cultic prostitutes and so on. They could go along and look like an idol worshiper and still be faithful to the one true God. There's good evidence, although we don't know for sure about the Nicolaitans, there's good evidence that the Nicolaitans here believe that your spirit was all that mattered. Your body didn't matter. Your physical part was unimportant. So go do all the stuff you want with your body. Your heart is still clean before the Lord. Oh, my. Listen to me. I I'm sorry I need to mention this, but our society today is becoming a lot like the world those first, for those first churches were born in. Sex and pornography were all over the place in that day. Not only was it acceptable to society, it was desired by society. That's what they thought they needed to do to please the gods. And listen, today it's all over the place in our society. It's in many homes through the computer screens on our desks. It's in many homes through the televisions in the corner. 
And today, people think that's what they need to be fully fulfilled, to be fully actualized as a human being. Our society would say today, you owe it to yourself to express your physical urges in whatever way you desire. Don't be repressed. Don't be stifled. Whatever your flesh desires, no one should judge you. And God wouldn't be such a killjoy that he would require you to control your urges and say no to your, to your temptations and refuse your desires. Who says it's wrong? That's our society today. But let me tell you the truth. The truth is that uncontrolled sexuality is a horrible kind of slavery. It's a wonderful gift, sexual intimacy within the, within the context of a faithful marriage, but it will be a raging tiger outside of that one flesh godly promise. Listen, we've got a problem. And it's not just out there in society. Like at Pergamum, sexual adventurism is capturing many in the church today. In a 2014 study commissioned by an organization called Proven Men and conducted by the Barna Group, 95% of born-again Christian men said that they had at least seen pornography. 54% said that they viewed porn at least once a month. 44% of believing born-again men admitted that they had used their com work computer for porn in the last 90 days. 18% of them admitted to being addicted, and another 9% wondered if they were addicted to porn. Pure Desire University shared these 2018 statistics. 57% of pastors say they struggle with pornography. 25 to 30% of Christian women struggle with sexual dependency issues. The statistics for women and pornography are less, but still serious. And I would say to us, if our statistics are only half as bad as the churches around us, if our situation is twice as good We've still got a problem. I'm going to guess this morning that Lakewood Church, like every church I've served, has a hidden problem with sexual impurity because the world has been setting our values. You see, many of us have a set of values we say we believe in, especially when we're with other Christians. We've got a different set of values we really live with. And here's what I want to say. If you're struggling with this, you're not alone. Far from it. They struggled with this in the first century, and we struggle with it today. And if you want to see the Holy Spirit bring victory in this area of your life, we are actively planning a ministry to address precisely these needs. If you'd be interested, please contact me or one of our pastors. Write me an email, write an e email to one of the pastors, or, or give me a phone call. 
maybe that'd be easier and we'll bring you in on the planning and launching of a ministry that will help you find freedom in Christ. Let me just say that shame and secrets and hiddenness are what keep us defeated. But we can help each other. And the Lord wants to give us victory. Look at the crucial counsel from Jesus, verse 16. Therefore, repent. Otherwise, I will come to you quickly and fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Repent. Who's that word addressed to? The church. There were individuals teaching false doctrine, but he holds the church responsible. It's not me versus them. No, this is us as we've spoken about. That's hard for us in this individualized personal independence, personal responsibility culture to understand. It's hard for us, isn't it? But the whole church is corrupted. Obviously, Jesus is most displeased with those who are teaching false doctrine, but not only them. Can it be that the Lord holds a church responsible for not confronting the seductive teachers in their midst? Therefore, repent, church. Otherwise, I will come to your church quickly and fight against them, the false teachers, with the sword of my mouth. The sword will be against the false teachers, but the battlefield, the battlefield will be the church. And that's going to be painful. Church conflicts are never pretty. Church fights rip congregations apart. Could it be that the very presence of conflict in the church is evidence of God's displeasure, that God's discipline has fallen upon a congregation. And listen, this was not about minor issues here. This is not just a difference of opinion about how we have communion or a debate about baptism or a discussion about whether Jesus will come back before the great tribulation or after the great tribulation. This is not about subtle points of ministry, whether, whether the Holy Spirit enters your life before you receive Christ or after you receive Christ, or, or whether the, the Holy Spirit uh, has done away with the gift of tongues and healing. Th this is not about minor stuff. This is about wickedness being encouraged within the church and about encouraging activity that really is worship of false gods. This is serious stuff here. And what Jesus warns is that if the church will not repent, the whole church, he will make the church a battleground that will devastate their witness and destroy their fellowship. The conflict itself will be judgment from God. What's the conditional promise? 
Anyone who has an ear should listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. I will give the victor some of the hidden manna. I will also give him a white stone. And on the stone, a new name is inscribed that no one except the one uh, uh, known by no one who uh, except the one who receives it. In contrast to eating meat sacrificed to idols, Jesus promises manna from above. The bread of life, as Jesus calls it in the Gospel of John. He also promises a white stone inscribed with a secret name. Perhaps that's a true lover's gift in contrast to the false intimacy of sexual lewdness. Or perhaps this is to signify victory. You know, white stones inscribed with a name, those were given to winners in the athletic games. Or maybe to innocence, white stones were given to those proven not guilty at trial. We're not altogether sure what this symbolizes, but it's unquestionably an honor from God, the true lover of our souls. So what's the application of this letter to the church at Pergamum? Let me give you several. First, this speaks of the fact that even churches with great strengths can have crippling weaknesses. No church is a perfect church. But sometimes even churches with, that the Lord has blessed and churches who are impressive and blessing other people, they can have hidden danger looking within the, lurking within the fellowship. Elders have a serious responsibility. Pastors have a serious responsibility to make sure not only that we are proclaiming truth, but that we're keeping the main thing the main thing. Let me share the second application just in the way of illustration. I had breakfast with Dave Lampert, who's chairing the transition team this past week, and he told me about a pastor friend of his who, in times past, had a weak heart. And so a pacemaker was implanted to control his heartbeat and to strengthen his heartbeat. The pacemaker functioned well. The wound on his chest healed well. But though he could not see it and though he did not feel it, there was an infection around his pacemaker that threatened his very life. Lakewood looks pretty wonderful from the outside. Impressive facilities, great programs, wonderful caring outreach, great missions work. We could go on and on and on. But the outward view does not reveal inner truth, the measure of inner godliness, the reality of inner vitality, and we need to make sure that we are as healthy as we look. You pray for that transition team. That's their work. Third, I want you to notice that the word repent is not a nasty, what's wrong with you, critical, bitter word of condemnation. We've all seen the cartoons of the little old guy who's so out of touch carrying a sign that says repent. 
That's not this word. Repent is a word to set right what's been wrong. Repent is a word that's designed to bring health and healing. One of the questions I keep asking as I seek to understand Lakewood's challenges is, what is it about us if we want God's blessing? What is it about us that needs to be different than it's been? What a critical question as we prepare ourselves to seek our next pastor. Before he arrives, wouldn't we want to be as healthy and whole as we could be? Before he arrives, wouldn't we want to just be eager and poised for a powerful move of God? That's what we're after. And finally this morning, hope. Why would Jesus speak to the church in Ephesus? Why would Jesus speak to the church in Smyrna? Or speak to the body in Pergamum? Or for that matter, why would Jesus have a word for Lakewood? Hope. Because he knows how great those churches could be. Because he wants joy in their fellowship. Because he sees how powerful and effective they can be for God. Because he knows that they can be a church with which Jesus is delighted and pleased. Because he desires all that for them. It's hope. It's hope. Let's pray. So, Lord, we're leaning forward to hear your voice. We are cupping our ear to magnify the sound so that we don't misunderstand or confuse what you want to say to us. We deeply desire to be a church that honors and glorifies your name. We deeply want to be the kind of church where joy is found, where fellowship is rich, where we have favor for one another. Because you said, Jesus, that the world will know we are yours by how we love each other. We're leaning forward, Jesus. Speak to us. We're listening. Amen.